0: This episode is brought to you by Dentons Canada. From startups to industry icons, Dentons acts for a wide variety of companies in both the public and private realms. As the world's largest law firm, Dentons can provide its global reach to your business. Visit Dentons.com for more details.
1: Welcome to The Frontier, a podcast series brought to you by Cap Intel, dedicated to bringing you the latest insights, innovations, and investment philosophies from the professionals who invest your money. This week, we're glad to have Chris Curlow back on the podcast.
2: Uh, this is a common theme in the investment world. Uh, investment managers and fund providers, ETF providers, often use framing in a, in a chart as an example. If you increase the scale of the chart, it's going to make good results look even better because they're going to go from the bottom left corner of that chart all the way to the top right. And there's two reasons this happens. One, because you anchored in a good idea and the market or the street didn't realize that idea for a a longer time uh, than you expected. And uh, a famous quote from Warren Buffett that I always like to remind people of is, the market can stay irrational longer
1: than you can stay liquid. Chris graduated from St. Mary's University with a Bachelor of Commerce degree, double majoring in finance and entrepreneurship. He began his career with Scotia Asset Management in 2008 and had progressing roles before becoming a senior analyst in the Investment Consulting Group. Chris was awarded with the Chartered Financial Analyst designation in 2012 and is now an Equity Portfolio Manager with Richardson GMP. In addition, Chris is now teaching finance at the Lazaridis School of Business and Economics at Wilfrid Laurier. Welcome back on the show. Thanks for having me
0: again. What is the study of behavioral economics and how does it differ from traditional economic thinking?
2: Economics assumes investors are rational and self-interested, when in reality, we're not. Otherwise, things like philanthropy wouldn't exist, where people give away willingly part of their wealth, or even things that people do to harm their bodies, like alcoholism or suicide. So I think that that kind of takes that out the window. Um, And then psychology, obviously, is the research behind biases and heuristics that impact our behaviors and our perceptions of different things. These shortcuts in psychology help us to deal with the world. It's part of our biology. Our brains are wired to react and protect us. Most of the time, they simply shift things around, help us understand complex situations, but sometimes they lead us in the wrong way, particularly when the stakes are high and emotions are involved. And unfortunately, in investing, that's pretty much all the time. And so what behavioral economics does is it combines the study of both economics and psychology to help investors overcome some of those heuristics and biases and make better investing decisions.
0: So essentially you've kind of got the vacuum economics, which makes assumptions about people. Turns out those assumptions aren't necessarily true uh, in investing. And so behavioral economics tries to sort of take the human element and blend it back into the economic thinking.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, Another component of economic theory is that uh, this rational behavior from investors leaves assets efficiently priced Uh, with the thesis that there's as many people acting irrationally in one direction as there are in the other direction, with the majority acting rationally, giving you an, an efficiently priced asset. When I mean, we don't have to look too far back in history, even if we just think of something like the tech boom, when technology stocks roared over 400% higher for the Nasdaq index over the course of a couple of years to subsequently retrace and give that all back. I mean, fundamentals don't change that rapidly. So that's simply human behavior and human sentiment repricing the assets. Uh, So I think that that example simply rebutes uh, that thesis. I mean, and then if we draw parallels today to the the prolific rise in anything related to blockchain technology, including cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, Um, you know, they're at this point of, as of recording today, they're still in that prolific run. But uh, at some point, I wouldn't be too surprised to see that kind of retrace and then at some point level out once the true economic value
0: is realized in those securities. So then understanding now that humans aren't technically rational in the classical economic sense. What are some of the aspects that make us irrational? And more specifically, what are some of the most important biases that impact investor behavior in the marketplace?
2: So there's really two types of biases, cognitive biases and emotional biases. Cognitive biases uh, affect the way we act with emotional kind of affecting the way we think. The cognitive biases are a little bit easier to combat, simply being aware of them. Uh, can really help. And we'll go over some of those examples here today. Uh, The emotional ones are a little bit more challenging. Those are our gut reactions. Uh, You naturally act on those. And as I'd alluded to earlier, they typically lead you in the right direction. Um, But in investing, they often do not. And so the best way to kind of combat those emotional biases is to use calming techniques or even just reflecting on your decisions, sleeping on the idea before reacting. But let me get into a couple examples. So framing uh, is a cognitive bias, and it's kind of easy to understand. Consider I give you just one piece of hypothetical information that stock ABC is likely to double over the next year. I think most investors would take that information and, and back the truck up as an investing cliche and buy into the idea. However, if I gave you a second information that that stock has an equal chance of going to zero over the next year, Many investors would reconsider that investment idea, and so it's simply just based on the way information is framed that we that impacts our decision making. Uh, this is a common theme in the investment world. Uh, investment managers and fund providers, ETF providers, often use framing in a, in a chart as an example. If you increase the scale of the chart, it's going to make good results look even better because they're going to go from the bottom left corner of that chart all the way to the top right however if you've been underperforming or you want to um, minimize the impact of some sort of negative performance whether it's in absolute or relative terms you expand that scale making that that line going across the chart seem really small and really that magnitude of a loss not that impactful and so the way something's framed is often uh, often impacts our Behavior. A way of combating that is to always search out a secondary opinion, uh, as well as as well as knowing that there's two sides to every story. So if something sounds too good to be true, use your rational thinking and try to determine. You know what am I missing here? What information is not being presented in the way that this information is being framed to me? And you can often overcome that. Uh, An example of an emotional bias and something that you know is a little bit more challenging to overcome would be the anchoring, anchoring bias and also incorporate availability bias into this example. So anchoring bias is when we have an opinion on a, it can happen in something in our real life, but since this is a finance podcast, I'll relate it to a stock example. And so basically you have a thesis stock, whatever that thesis may be. And like any true fundamental investor, you understand that it'll likely take some time until the market also realizes that there's a disconnect between this stock of where it is priced today and where you believe it should be priced. And so consider that stock continues to move lower, giving you essentially a better value opportunity and lower and lower. Um, Despite new information coming out, a lot of people just anchor in that opinion and do not process the new information and, and change their thesis over time. They stick to that original idea. Uh, This can often lead to outsized losses that you originally would not have expected. Um, And there's two reasons this happens. One, because you anchored in a good idea and the market or the street didn't realize that idea for a a longer time uh, than you expected. And uh, a famous quote from Warren Buffett that I always like to remind people of is, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay liquid. (laughs) So things can move the wrong way for quite a long time and maybe not justifiably so but the second reason and this is probably the more common reason is that your thesis may have been wrong to begin with and you just had read a really good research report listened to uh, some figurehead on BNN or CNBC that pitched a good idea um, that was maybe missing part of the puzzle and didn't transform your view as information changed the one way that my team and I combat this bias is through um revisit levels. We say, you know, whether depending on the security but whether it's 10 or 20% below the purchase price, no matter what, we're going to revisit the security why we bought it and try to understand why the market isn't understanding the the things that we saw in in the in the thesis and we feel that really helps you unanchor from your
0: opinion. Just a recap. So framing is essentially you can give somebody the same piece of information and package it in two different ways, and they're gonna treat it differently. And so there's that sort of frame, framing bias people run into. Um, anchoring bias is you go in with a going in position and you hold on to it despite any movements in the market or some new information, you're gripping it no, the stock's in a turn, it's going to turn and you can end up being irrational and losing. And then availability is um, that you run into it or encounter the information easily and it influences your uh, existing opinions already or does it actually help you create investment?
2: Yeah, so the availability bias, I didn't really dive into as much as I should have there, but availability bias is actually something where you overweight new information more than existing information. And so an example of that would be and this is uh, something I'll probably touch on later while we get into the fund specific questions, but basically a stock over overreacting to earnings. So say stock ABC comes out and earnings expectations were for a dollar and they come out and report 90 cent earnings. So it misses by a dime and a stock drops 15% within a matter of seconds. Most of the time that's unjustified. It's just people saying, you know, at this point in time. Uh, This is the most recent piece of information. I'm going to put an unjustified amount of weight onto that. And then in our society with high frequency training, they jump onto that negative momentum, drive the stock even further past its intrinsic value. When fundamental analysts like myself do research, we're looking at a discounted cash flow essentially in perpetuity for this company. And so that quarterly miss today is really inconsequential to what the true value is of the security. And so that's an example of the availability bias. And I think I could even dovetail one more, that being loss aversion, which is uh, a, an extremely important bias to, to understand for behavioral finance and behavioral psychology. Uh, loss aversion is th- the realization of a loss. Um, many behavioral finance uh, practitioners say it's pretty much the pain you feel from a loss is about twice as painful as the reward you feel from a gain Mm -hmm. and so when you see those securities and this reverts back to my anchoring bias um, example earlier when you're realizing those losses you don't want to crystallize it because it feels real it feels like Mm -hmm. you've actually made a mistake and so that loss aversion causes people to again hold on um, and maybe even have more faith and hope in their anchoring bias and so these kind of can pile on top of each other and that's why i think listening to something like this and being aware of those can help people overcome those kind of pitfalls in their investment decision making
0: so these biases have true impact on investor performance um you know and and can by the sounds of it, be pretty catastrophic if you've got an anchoring bias uh, combined with loss aversion. You don't want to face the music and and you know officially lose your shirt on a stock. You just want to stay down. Well, if I have the stock, it can still go up. But if I if I sell it, my cash is just going to sit there. So that makes sense. And I think we've all heard stories or have ourselves experienced something like that uh, in in you know learning how to invest. Presumably, not everyone has every bias, or I guess more delicately put, not every person has the same bias to the same extent. Do people generally have the same biases or something like risk tolerance, which seems to be the major differentiator when categorizing investors have a role to play in the biases that, say, I have?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's several different things to consider uh, when trying to understand which biases you're susceptible to risk aversion is is high up there on the list um even higher from a lot of the research we've done is a determinant of how somebody's accumulated their wealth over their lifetime Mm -hmm. Um, there's two major categories and this is kind of where we start you and we use kind of a decision tree model to determine which type of an archetype of investor you are and then When we figure that out, then we could say you're likely susceptible to these biases. So be particularly cognizant of those and try to avoid uh, making the mistakes associated with them. But we start with active and passively accumulating wealth. So really the only true active accumulators of wealth are are entrepreneurs, people that have risked their own capital to make money. Uh, That definitely puts you into a certain category. And then on the passive side, that's anyone that's either inherited money or kind of made their wealth through a traditional job at a bank or a major institution where they get a paycheck pretty certainly every every couple of weeks. And so then that can lead you into two broader camps. And then from there, our decision tree typically breaks breaks down into two more groups. And and we have a, a list of biases that uh, impact those type of people. And we're actually conducting a speaker survey or speaker series starting in the new year uh, where our chief investment officer and I are, are going across the country and doing two types of presentations, one for specifically tailored to investment advisors. And so if there's any investment advisors listening to this, um, feel free to reach out to us uh, if, you'd l- if you want some more information on that topic. Uh, subsequently, we're also doing an end retail client type of presentation. Uh, we'll actually record uh, a final copy of that later in our speaker series once we've really fine-tuned the presentation and have it posted on YouTube and our website, ConnectedWealth.com. So I encourage anyone interested to please visit our website, uh, have a view of that presentation, and feel free to send us uh, an email if you want any more information and we
0: can uh, help you out from there. For sure. So then th- that's interesting, I guess. And one of the things that's not quite as um, apparent is is that it's not just the buckets of risk, high risk, um, tolerance investor versus a low tolerance investor, but also how they actually acquired the money that they are investing makes a big difference uh, with regards to the biases that they could have. At Richardson GMP, you co-manage the Redwood Behavioral Opportunities Fund, which incorporates these behavioral economic aspects into the trading strategy. Why do you believe this is a winning strategy?
2: Well... The world is obviously fraught with value investing funds, dividend-focused strategies, growth strategies. This is going to be the first pure behavioral finance fund uh, available in Canada. So I think that that alone, from a diversification standpoint, um, it would be in your alternative bucket, I would say. It's not going to be much like anything else in your portfolio. So the unique diversification characteristics are one reason why I think we should have some success and why it can fit into... A, a clients portfolio secondly there's also a, a psychological diversification aspect to this particularly with those people that often find themselves susceptible to the types of biases that we're talking about today you know if if you're now looking at marijuana stocks or cryptocurrency stocks after they've had this prolific run you know it's not to say that the runs over but I think that that fear of missing out is a, is a common bias we see amongst retail investors. And in this example, uh, it's hard to say whether coming in at this point is still a good idea or not. But generally speaking, over time, you want to buy stuff when it's kind of beaten up, not when it's had a great run. And so um, those are the kind of opportunities, not not exactly, but the type of thing that we're trying to take advantage of is uh, going against the herd's view. And so I think that this Strategy will actually provide a level of diversification from the psychological and behavioral mistakes that a lot of people make. So not only from a traditional sense in a portfolio diversification standpoint, but also to hedge you against some of the, the own, uh, your own biases and mistakes that w- us as humans all have uh, hard-coded inside of us.
0: Given that it's a, a human issue, I guess that you're, you're an investor side issue that you're addressing or you're trying to capitalize on in the fund do you limit the stocks you pick from industries or is it pretty much anything is there a regional uh, aspect to it from expertise perspective or like what's the the general universe you guys are playing in with this
2: so running a mutual fund in canada certainly has kind of rules in the sand that we have to abide by but generally speaking the majority of our our investments will be in equity securities, but we do have the latitude to go into fixed income uh, as well as options uh, to, to execute some of the strategies that we're looking at. Uh, we can a- actually also go short, um, which is basically betting against the stock from going higher uh, to a certain degree within the fund. From a regional standpoint, um, it will be primarily focused in North America. Uh, that's part of our mandate. But we do have quite a lot of latitude, and the the rules in mutual fund investing uh, now allow us to be um, really differentiated from our our benchmark and our peer group. And so um, this is still what's called a full prospectus-based mutual fund, which makes it available for sale to pretty much anybody listening to this call uh, with a low minimum investment level, where solutions like this, which, you know, are it's pretty alternative compared to your plain vanilla dividend fund used to really only be exclusively eligible for accredited investors, meaning people that have over a million dollars in, uh, in net worth. And so it's pretty, it's pretty interesting and a great time to be a retail investor where you can access products like this that have that much latitude in the security selection.
0: So an ability to get out of some of the traditional um, barriers that you were in uh, recently, I guess. When you're trading with the fund, how do you identify when behavioral bias is affecting a stock's value and that there's an opportunity for you to capitalize on it?
2: Yeah, so it's a really a, a four-step approach. We first need to identify a repeated investor behavioral mistake. Uh, from there, we need to make sure that that mistake causes a dislocation in the true value of the stock to its intrinsic value, and that over time that dislocation is corrected uh, kind of by the efficient market. And then from there we develop a trading strategy, at which point we continue to monitor and test the strategy as things evolve over time. And so that's essentially how each one of our different buckets in this multi-strategied approach are created, Um, and I'm happy to get into detail on a couple of those strategies if you like. Yeah, for sure. So today I'll focus on probably two or three of our, of the different strategies within our, within our fund. Uh, So the first one we call our unloved to to under love strategy. Um, It's a pretty interesting and novel approach. So most people would assume that Um, stocks in any index that are generally liked by analysts are probably going to outperform as those analysts have buy recommendations, meaning that they expect the stock price to be higher than where it is today. And where stocks that have less buy ratings and more sell ratings would likely underperform. And so we ran some simple analysis to test that theory, bucketing the TSX 60 uh, and then separating it into quintiles where we took the top quintile, which is the top fifth of stocks with the, the most buy ratings and then the bottom quintile uh, which is the stock the bottom fifth of stocks with the least buy ratings and compared those against each other over the last 10 years and surprisingly enough we found that the unloved stocks drastically outperformed uh, the love stocks mm. and so we have a couple reasons behind that and I think um, the, the biggest one would be the herding mentality uh, and so we went one step further with that Um, into how we developed our trading strategy, which is probably a little bit too deep for this. But basically, we're looking for companies that break through a threshold of being unloved to kind of underlove, where they're still not you know, in that high consensus buy rating, but at least we're seeing some analysts jumping on board to the idea. And so that's where I think the herding mentality comes in, um, both from a retail level as well as an analyst level. Uh, It's pretty hard for analysts to kind of go against the herd for a company that... A lot a lot of people commonly call value traps you know I, I could think back to to Macy's or L brand some of the retail stocks in the US earlier this year well earlier in 2017 that were really getting beaten up and then finally buck the trend moving higher but you know a lot of land on this weren't sure if this was kind of a dead cat bounce is another sorry uh, jargony term mm-hmm. or if it was for real uh, and in situations like that, oftentimes that kind of rogue analyst comes out, changes his recommendation from either hold or sell to a buy. And if that had broken through our threshold, it would hit our quantitative screen and, and, and pop up to us in the morning, at which point we decide whether or not to, to buy it based on a bunch of other factors. Um, but the, the premise being that after you get that first analyst breaking away from the pack, uh, the herd tends to follow. And then more buy ratings propagate a better traction for the stock, at which point the retail herd, the people that watch those analysts, start jumping on board and and propel the stock higher. Uh, The other reason why I think that this group tends to outperform uh, the top quintile is that when everyone has a buy rating on a stock, the likely next rating change is going to be a sell or a hold or a downgrade, yeah. uh, which is negative, which is typically taken negatively by the street. And so, for that said, I think you know and this could be applied in a general sense, but you know I think the the lesson to be learned here is that uh, you don't want to just essentially look for the stocks with the most buy ratings despite the fact that there is a comforting level going with the herd and the reason why uh, that's deeply ingrained in us Um, but going against it in investing i think that's an example right there as to how that can work out in your favor
0: so that's really interesting you identify the opportunity or the disconnect because you're looking at stocks that have been beaten up or left by the herd on their own and then as soon as something starts to change. As soon as sentiment starts to change or people start to realize the value gaps existing, the buy ratings come in. Some people start calling it, even if it's only a few, and then that creates an opportunity for you to jump in and then capitalize on the fact that the herd will rush back into this stock and then pump it even higher than it may necessarily be worth or at the very least bring it to its true value, in which case you could potentially sell or there's another action that be had there.
2: For sure. I mean, even in the latter stage of the process that you're describing, how we often see what's another bias, the confirmation bias, which is, you know, we've had people now view one analyst, call it a buy. And so they start jumping on the idea, maybe doing some research. You get another analyst that comes out and says, buy, that's confirming uh, your opinion. That gives you just to be honest, in most cases, an unjustified amount of conviction in the idea, but yeah. for the retail investor, that's enough to get them to pull the trigger, and that increased price reaction might be even enough for the next person, and it's kind of a cascade of, of uh, emotion that we've found typically helps raise these stocks to new to new highs. Um, why don't I just jump into one other strategy that we kind of alluded to yeah, sure. earlier on the in the discussion? Um, which is our earnings over over under reaction. Um, This strategy is kind of taking advantage of the availability bias and recency bias that we described briefly before. Uh, But it goes it goes both ways and both kind of a long and a short type of opportunity. And so the strategy is basically in the hypothetical example I gave earlier, with the stock missing earnings from Uh, Reporting $1 or expected $1 earnings, and then reporting 90 cents and moving substantially on that news, Um, we found that low-quality companies, which we define based on a certain subset of fundamentals, uh, that's pretty technical. I won't get into the details on that. And then high-quality companies, which again would be on the on kind of the opposite set of fundamentals. So when you have a high-quality company. Let's say like a Canadian bank stock, we've, we typically think most of those are higher quality companies. If they unjustifiably gap lower on earnings, especially after the kind of run that they've had uh, recently, uh, um, market participants take advantage of that as a buying opportunity. The gap lower is those people overreacting, using that availability bias or recency bias, overemphasizing the recent news. But the longer-term, pragmatic, typically institutional investors use that dip as a buying opportunity, step in and typically close that gap over a short period of time. And so we've found that with this strategy, it's a bit of a quicker trading strategy. If yeah. we can get into it um, early enough and the gap is big enough and it screens on our quantitative models, we'll, we'll take long positions there. Conversely, uh, under or lower-quality companies... I don't want to signal anyone out here but the kind of you know trendy high-flying stocks that are kind of moving up on hype and let or even actually moving lower and and are maybe in the in a spiral towards zero uh if they gap higher on earnings say you had a stock that's gone from a 100 bucks down to 20 bucks and then it gaps up to 22 on a day that's enough for a lot of people to say, "Okay, thank God, I finally got a bit of a, a gap higher here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cash out. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna close out this position." And we often see those companies giving that gap up back, and so we tend to take a short position. That's betting that the stock will actually go lower in the subsequent uh, days and weeks to come.
0: That's really interesting, and that's, a, I think, a funny example of. Some of the biases, the anchoring bias, for example, you're, you're on a you know, straight dive bomb on your stock, you want to hold it, you want to hold it, it'll turn someday, and then you get a bit of an earnings bump, and they beat expectations, and you go, finally, it's coming back up, let me get out now, because I haven't lost all my money, and you can actually take advantage of that bias, um, and, and seeing that with the value gap, and people overreacting in the
2: short term. Right, Exactly. And that's uh, and that just comes back to that availability bias where they're just, you know, there's a new piece of information. And now let's overweight that that piece of information Um, and something we see actually quite frequently.
0: This may be hard to answer, but how much of this is, you know, because you've got sort of two moving targets of the strategy like this. You've got um, focusing, let's say, entirely on investor behavior And just the fact that you can probably make some money by finding on average that regardless of the underlying firm, if there's this gap in earnings that we just talked about, people will sell. So you can just sort of run a 100 percent, don't really look at the stock, doesn't really matter um, strategy where you're literally just trying to take advantage of these as they occur um, for any any stock. but. You have those two moving targets. You've got investor behavior and then you've got the underlying business itself mm-hmm. and how it's operating because that obviously builds context and means, you know, it will show that not every time that they gap their earnings, their stock's going to kick down if they have already been coming on a, on, on a long spiral down. So how much, and this is a long way to say it, but how, what percentage, if you could, um, of the strategy is based on investor behavior and what percentage is based on the underlying business itself? Is it a 50-50 split? Or?
2: It's actually heavily weighted to the investor behavior side of things. Yeah. Um, we've really quantified a ton of our strategies and are actually applying machine learning into those uh, underlying strategies to help optimize and enhance them. Um, through my machine learning, studying, and and data science um, literature that I've been reading lately, it's been said that about 90% of the data in our world has been created in the past two years. And so this vast amount of data allows us to not only look at like an earnings gap down situation, but then we compare that situation to thousands of situations related to it in the past and what happens next. And then that kind of gives us the conviction and the idea. So, I would say these, you know, five six times out of ten, like we don't know the company we're buying intimately, like we do um, on the Redwood Core Income Equity Fund, where we have you know deeply rooted opinions and dividend discount models on these yeah. on these on these funds. Um, there is, and so it's that combination of our quantitative screening models with our machine learning techniques, and then where the human aspect comes in to play uh, from a qualitative standpoint is we do understand um, the intercorrelations amongst securities. And so we don't want to become over-concentrated to one subsector of the market. Conversely, we don't want to be over-concentrated in one of our uh, individual strategies. So we do have limits on how many um, or what percentage of the fund can be in an individual strategy. Um, But there are opportunities where, you know, we're kind of, Going against our going against our gut and, and you need to do that if you want to run a behavioral finance fund. So yeah. sometimes you're not going to really you know like the company that, that you're picking up that day like fundamentally, but um, to mitigate that, our risk management tools um, are both in the sizing of the position. So when we have less conviction in the idea, we'll use a smaller weight to allocate to that fund. Mm-hmm. We also use stop losses on the downside and in this strategy those are those are hard stop losses when it breaches that level we typically just immediately sell the stock whereas in our more fundamental portfolios we use those as revisit levels to see you know is the street missing something and we should buy more of it or are we missing something and we should cut our losses here Um, and so it kind of goes full circle but to your point i would say it's heavily weighted on the uh quantitative um systematic Aspect of this strategy, and but there is a, a level of portfolio management, which is not—we don't just leave it right up to the machines. The the one thing we <laughs> we continually say is uh we think machine plus human beats either machine or human, so that's something we imply with this fund.
0: Yeah, that's a that's that's a fair statement. I think it's it's interesting. So it really is a true play on the behavioral uh, aspects uh, for the most part, and, and I guess is. As far along as as you can comfortably get to be betting on behavioral uh, opportunities, and so it's a well named fund for 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 that perspective. Last question here, um, not entirely related to what we've been talking about before, but going with our goal of the podcast, trying to educate people, trying to give them little snippets of information and insights from professional investors. What's one piece of advice you would like to leave our listeners with for investing on their own?
2: Um, I think I'm going to bring this back to, to the psychology aspect of it all. And um, in Psych 101, you kind of learn about two types of reasoning. There's reactive reasoning and reflective reasoning. Reactive reasoning is easy. Um, it's, it's reactive. It's effortless. Uh, and then reflective reasoning is deliberate, intentional, takes effort. Um, in all aspects of our life, reflective reasoning works great because we can make quick decisions based with a lot of information presented to us The biggest thing, biggest piece of advice I can give the listeners is try to use that reflective reasoning when you're making investment decisions. Take a second. Don't let your gut make the choices for you. Reflect on it. Take time. If you need to sleep on the decision, don't just go out there and uh, um, do what you feel is right because unfortunately that's not always going to be the right decision uh, when the stakes are high and the emotions are running high.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the show again. Really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, no problem. And if you'd like more information about the Behavioral Opportunities Fund or any of our other uh, investment solutions, feel free to visit connectedwealth.com or on your personal trading platform. We actually got the ticker BHAV for the ETF version of the solution. Should be easy to remember.
1: Well named. If you'd like more information about the Behavioral Opportunities Fund, please visit connectedwealth.com or on your personal trading platform, you can find the ETF version of the solution under the ticker BHAV. This episode is brought to you by Capintel, a fund analytics company helping investment professionals select the top performing funds for their clients. Industry experts nationwide trust Capintel to make better decisions faster. Find out why at capintel.ca.